Welcome to the Public Morality. Annual commemorations of the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s often gloss over systematic attempts to thwart its efforts. But author Gene Slater has meticulously examined efforts by real estate lobbies to implement racial segregation under the banner of individual liberty. Freedom to Discriminate uncovers realtors' definitive role in segregating America and shaping modern conservative ideology, drawing on confidential documents from leaders of the real estate industry. Slater reveals how realtors systematically created and justified racial segregation. Slater has served as senior advisor on housing for federal, state, and local agencies for over 40 years, and we welcome him to the public morality. Gene Slater, welcome to the public morality. Hi, how are you? Good. I want to begin uh, our conversation by reading a passage from your introduction, which I thought was quite powerful. What proved to be the most effective ideological response to the civil rights ideal of freedom was developed in, the, in these same months not by Southern segregationists, Republican politicians, or National Review intellectuals, but by a source whose crucial role then is almost forgotten today, the nation's realtors. What exactly was this ideological response that you're referring the response, let me just give a little context sure. and then talk about the response. So we're talking in 1963 and 1964, and residential segregation has been very intense and intensified even after the Supreme Court in 1948 ruled in Shelley versus Kramer that courts couldn't enforce racial covenants. And realtors used First, they proposed a U.S. constitutional amendment um, to overturn the 14th Amendment, and they would propose, basically would have created apartheid. And then on the advice of their lawyers, told them, you can do this, you can accomplish what you're wanting of keeping neighborhoods all white throughout the country um, by racial steering, lying about whether a house was available, by freezing out any broker who dared show a home to a minority. This was so intense that the civil rights groups who had fought for that you know, Supreme Court decision and thought that would mean the end of segregation, they developed you know, fair housing laws that were being passed around the country. Those was passed in California in 1963. And that's where half the realtors in the country were. And these laws made it through you know, liberal legislatures. And remember, this is a time at the height of liberalism Lyndon is running, running for re-election is going to crush Barry Goldwater. And at the height of support for the civil rights movement and the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So the idea of freedom that's propelling the civil rights movement all the time, this idea of shared freedom, is the one Martin Luther King spoke about at the March on Washington. So realtors were now in a quandary. They're, they put on the ballot a state constitutional amendment that would forever prohibit fair housing. They would say every owner and their broker has an absolute right, absolute discretion to discriminate, to decide who's house to, um, whether or not somebody's offering the best price or not. And so they're running a campaign for this constitutional amendment. But how do you 
argue publicly for that campaign in 1963 and 1964, a time when you can't be explicitly racist and you need an argument that's convinced the vast majority of people who see themselves as prejudiced to support the realtors. No, no leading politician, not Barry Goldwater, not Ronald Reagan will endorse the reasons. So Spike Wilson, who's the president of the California Realtors, comes up with an approach. And it's an approach arguments realtors have made before, which is minorities depreciate property values that had been discredited by study after study. They'd used in the late 40s and 50s freedom of association. Um, each race's right to a neighborhood exclusive to itself to exclude other people. These weren't arguments you could make publicly in 1963 and 1964. All politicians, church groups, business leaders were against them. They're politically isolated. So the argument that Spike Wilson comes up with is, an, is basically he decides to exactly reverse Martin Luther King's idea of American freedom. And he talks about Freedom, he does two things. He invents the language that has become known as colorblind freedom. And so he says, this is important in terms of being able to be acceptable. He says, we're in favor of the same rights for white owners and black owners. It's, it happens to be the right to discriminate, but we're in favor of equal rights. We're the people in favor of equal rights. And realtors nationally put out a an action kit to all their members, their boards. And it says, never speak about race, only about freedom. And so it's this idea of freedom that they use. So they're arguing, we're the ones in favor of equal rights. They do that. And the, the key to colorblind freedom is what it, doesn't, what it doesn't talk about. They pick a single narrow right, that of an owner, to choose who to sell to. And they make that an absolute right. They make that absolute freedom. And they never talk about the rights of buyers to the rights of tenants, the right of somebody to choose where to live. So the first thing they do is that. And the second thing they do is they turn zero, they turn freedom into a zero sum. They say it's your absolute right. And and any absolute right always means the right you have that limits the rights of others. That's what any absolute right does. So they elevate this narrow right of uh, this narrow right. This is a technique that's later going to be used on issue after issue on abortion, on guns, on uh, religious rights to discriminate, campaign finance restrictions, whatever it is. They argue that that is freedom itself. And so they talk about the individual having an absolute freedom to choose on billboards across the state, on Los Angeles freeways, it, it's blazing freedom freedom of choice. So this is the new idea of freedom that, that they develop. And it's so powerful because they link it. They say people have the choice to choose basically means to discriminate, right? That's what choice means. And if you have an absolute right to do that, that's your right. And th they present this argument and they say, this is like, this is your dictates of conscience, individual dictates of conscience. So they tie it to freedom of religion. Why? It makes it sacred. And freedom of religion seems like an absolute, unlike freedom of speech and freedom of press that have always been limited. Government has always balanced rights. So it's this new idea of freedom. And really what it is, is it's an idea that government has no legitimate claim 
to balance this absolute right against the rights of others. So effective is this argument because what it says to people is you don't need to be, you're not prejudiced because you're in favor of this position 14. It means you're on the side of defending American freedom. And this wins 65% of the vote, 75% of the white vote, 80% of the white union vote. It sets a new idea of American freedom. And that's really the key, the key to the story. You know, it, it's, I think it's somewhat ironic for those listening today who only know California as a blue state. And a lot of what your book talks about, not only talks about California, the blue state, but a lot of it centers around what many of us might regard today as the bluest of the blue California state that provides this sort of macabre underpinnings that one might associate with other regions of the country that you sort of allude to also in your introduction. I think, first of all, it's important to realize that until Pat Brown was elected governor in 1958, their Republicans had largely dominated the state, largely moderate Republicans, um, like Earl Warren, who later became Chief Justice Supreme Court, was a governor of California, a progressive governor. There's a long history. California politically was sort of a bellwether um, nationally. So I don't think we should, we can't look at it the way it is now. We have to look at it back at the time. And so part of my story is about the outcome, the outgrowth of the progressive movement that sort of dominated California politically in the form of real estate. That took the form of the creation of real estate boards in the early 1900s, whose members were progressive Republicans and were and talked influenced by Teddy Roosevelt and the community good and stability and progress. So that's sort of the context for what happened in California. Your book in general, and I know right now we're, we're talking about the state of California, but, but generally speaking, your book suggested to me that you that you sort of outline a predicate for what would be a major theme that fostered uh, Republican dominance, not just in California, but nationally during the last half of 20th century. Your, your, your thoughts about that, sir? Yeah. So I've talked about this idea of freedom that the realtors used. The reason it became so influential. So on the same ballot, where Lyndon Johnson defeated Barry Goldwater, were both nationally, but in California by roughly 60% to 40%, the most overwhelming landslide in our history. Okay? And everybody wrote off conservatives of, uh, there were, I think, Goldwater got 40% of the vote. Of those, only a quarter said they voted for him because he was a conservative. So every commentator said, this is sort of the end of conservatism in America. And what the realtors had done was provided a way of arguing, a line that could be used on campaign after campaign. It was adopted by Ronald Reagan. He had, he had refused to endorse the realtors during their campaign. Two years later, he's running for governor. And the state Supreme Court rules Proposition 14 on Constitution. So Reagan now, who's very concerned about being seen as a racist, he starts taking the realtor's side, arguing for the will of the people that they supported this. And then he argues, he starts using the realtor's language, 
because he's sort of floundering in terms of using his abstract languages of freedom and tyranny. And, you know, it sounds like Goldwater. And now he's talking about something concrete. He's talking about homeowners' rights. And he starts saying, if an individual wants to discriminate in selling or renting his house to a Negro, that's his right to do so. He starts using the realtor's language, and this propels him to success, you know, both uh, uh, in California and to be a presidential candidate. Yeah. Did, did, did he actually say if, if, a, if a realtor wants to yes. discriminate? Yes. Yeah. Now, if an individual wants, yes, yes. he did. Yes, uh, that's a quote. Your, your book captures, I would say, a unique moment uh, in the American narrative in the year, I mean, 1964. I mean, number one, you sort of touched on some of these things, but it was obviously the it was the dominant, uh, the apex of the Democratic Party dominating the White House from 32 to 64. You know, they held the presidency all but eight years. It, it, it sort of launched then actor Ronald Reagan into a national spotlight. Uh, you had the 64 Civil Rights Act. You had Freedom Summer. You had the free speech movement. And then you had Proposition 14, which you've been talking about. Can you put all of this, just sort of the country mood or, or California mood, in, in some sort of context for us? Yeah. I mean, I think well, it sort of looks different now that we're looking back at it. I mean, so much that was covered about the media was what was happening sort of on the left. But in some ways, this redefinition of freedom provided a tool used to split the Democratic Party, to split that FDR Democratic coalition. Proposition 14 won 82% of the white, non, of the white union vote. Those were people who had almost all voted for Democrats. That had been a key part of the Democratic coalition. So it sort of split white ethnics, Catholics, um, away from the Democratic Party because it gave them a new idea. And the idea was the liberal government is taking away your freedom to give it to other people. It argued that freedom isn't something that, you know, your freedom depends on other people, but just the opposite that if freedom is being extended to other people, it's taking away something fundamental to you. And that argument, I think, became critical, uh, you know, to, to Nixon. It became critical to the rise of the Republican Party. And if you want, I can talk about what I think were the, the three reasons why this was so, was please, so crucial. Please go right ahead. I, I think it proved so powerful in the long run because it did a couple of things. First, Conservatives at the time were quite divided between two very different groups. There were libertarians, um, talked a lot about you know, individual liberty and your right to do what you wanted, freedom from government. And there were social conservatives like Russell Kirk, who had been the intellectual architect of the conservative movement, many of the National Review writers. And their theme was social conservatism. It was religion, tradition, government should enforce uh, school prayer, and so forth. What the language of Proposition 14 of individual choice to defend all white neighborhoods, what that did was it used libertarian language to express what you would think of as its, its opposite, social conformity, community traditions, insistence on things being the way they are. That way of marrying libertarianism and social conservatism became a model throughout the country on issue after issue. The second thing that it did 
was it set up a transcendental value. It said there's something more important than politics, more important than your own economic self-interest, which might lead people to vote for Democrats or for, for Medicare or for healthcare. We hear all these issues today. It said there's something more important, something more sacred, which is freedom. And by making people feel that these narrow specific rights, their right to live in a white neighborhood or whatever it was, that that was what it wasn't merely that it was their freedom it was at stake. And they said liberal government is taking away your freedom. So freedom became by definition that which liberal government is taking away from you and giving somebody else. And if you make freedom the issue, it transcends everything, it transcends ordinary politics, it transcends democracy. That's what we saw on January 6th, was if you believe that freedom is at stake. I remember there was a voter in Sacramento who wrote into uh, letters to the editor and said, I'm voting a big yes on Proposition 14 because, friends, this is our freedom that's at stake and this is our last chance to defend it. This idea of we're at the last gasp this is the last way to defend freedom. That became dominant. The third way is about the Republican Party itself. And this is the one that really connects even more to the present. And it's this, that the idea of a national conservative party, the party we now call the Republican Party, was conceived in the 1940s, 1947, by Charles Wallace Collins, a brilliant Southern banking lawyer, and racist propaganda. And he realized that, you know, President Truman was desegregating the armed forces. He was going to um, take on Jim Crow. And he said, the only chance to really defend Jim Crow is if Southern Democrats, who were very solidly, you know, all white Southern Democrats were very solidly in the Democratic Party. If they left the Democratic Party, and joined together with those conservative Northern Midwestern Republicans who would agree on a common platform. Democrats from the South, former Democrats from the South, would support Republicans against government regulation of business if Northern Republicans would defend Southern Democrats, would defend, keep government out of civil rights. So here was this idea of, a, and this could be a national majority party. In 1964, after Goldwater won five Southern states and Strom Thurmond endorsed, they were, became a Republican. That was now a possibility, but it could only be a possibility if it had a language, an ideology that could be used both in the North and in the South. It couldn't talk about white racism. It couldn't talk about Jim Crow. It needed a different language. The realtors have been forced to create this racially neutral language because they were fighting in California. So if something could win 75% of the white folks in California, it could win anywhere. So this became the message of this new national conservative party. And its inherent dynamics are such that organized around, this is totally opposite. I mean, the Republican Party in 1964, 80% of the congressmen voted for the Federal Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act, more so than Democrats did, okay? Until 1963, both parties were seen as in the same place on civil rights. So you now have a new Republican Party using this new language. And it uses it on issue after issue. Every interest group 
you know, on every issue, they use the same language of freedom, whether it's abortion, gun rights, so forth. What unites them? It's not this adventitious alliance of different groups that would, you would think would splinter any movement, but they're all using the same language. What's at stake is absolute American freedom. And so that unifies that party. And so the result is a party that becomes its only message, its central message becomes this idea of freedom. And so it has no choice but to keep moving in a direction where only those who advocate this is the only meaning of freedom come to dominate that party. And that's what we're seeing today. Who is, or who was, I should say, who was uh, William Byron Rumford? So Byron Rumford was um, from Berkeley. He'd grown up in Arizona. And he came to Berkeley to go to, or to San Francisco to go to pharmacy, UC pharmacy school, became a pharmacist, and got involved in democratic politics. And he was a, um, his first key issue, he was an African-American elected to the state assembly in 1948. And his, his first key issue was integrating the National Guard. He then worked for many years, for a decade, on fair employment and, and helped sponsor the fair employment law, which was really his, his great focus. And then he wound up sponsoring in 1963 what became known as the Rumford Act, which was a fair housing law. So he was somebody whose focus was on building coalitions, on trying to overcome prejudice, on trying to get people to work together and finding common ground. And it was his law, the Rumford Act, this fairly modest fair housing law, that realtors attacked with Proposition 14. Hmm. Uh, what, what were some of the details of uh, the Fair Housing Act? Let's start there. What were some of the details of that? So what fair housing basically said, you can't, or it said there, there are rules about discriminating in the sale or rental of private property. The Rumford Act only dealt, was quite limited. It dealt with multifamily properties, more than five units, so you can't rent them, you can't discriminate in renting them. And it dealt only fairly narrowly with about a quarter of single family homes, those that had government insured mortgages on the argument, well, government's already involved in this, so government has some claims. So it said, you can't discriminate. And if you do, if somebody's discriminated against they can bring a complaint before the Fair Employment Practices Commission, who have been set up in California, and who can make a finding, either that you're entitled to the unit or most they could impose a fine of $500. So it was a fairly modest law, but it, was a, but it had an administrative enforcement mechanism, this idea that you know somebody could go to a hearing, you didn't need a lawyer to try and make certain that you could uh, be able to buy a house. I'm speaking with author uh, Gene Slater about his latest book, Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspired to Segregate Housing and Divide America. Gene, though your book is largely focused on events that took place in in 64 and sort of the momentum um, that that created, it's really also part of a continuum, especially in California politics and California's direct democracy that has run a parallel course with electoral politics in the state up until the present moment we, we just saw with the recently concluded um, recall election. Talk about that process and how 
how powerful direct democracy is to circumvent to circumvent issues, and in this case, to circumvent um, the mm. run for that. So California created this um, series of uh, const- under its constitution, I think in uh, nineteen ten amended the constitution and was led by progressive Republicans at the time who were against the power of the railroads um, to dominate the state legislature. They basically had most legislature on their payroll um, informally, and nobody could get anything to limit their monopoly power. And so they created this initiative process, which allows people to, by petition, to put referendum on the ballot, to put recall elections on the ballot, to put constitutional amendments on the ballot. And this then became a sort of central theme of California politics, this idea of you can go around the legislature with what if you want to think of it as direct democracy. I mean, we think of it as direct democracy, everybody gets to vote. But it also means that powerful interest groups able to raise large amounts of money, think Uber and Lyft on the, uh, you know, they put in an amendment after the legislature passed a law limiting, you know, uh, uh, saying that the, you know, Uber and Lyft drivers were, you know, were not you know, independent contractors, were employees, were entitled to rights. They spent, I think, $200 million on such an initiative. So often these initiatives have used the language of populism, of the democracy, but they've often been sponsored by very powerful, you know, business well, I, I love some of the names. It's uh, it's hard to, it's hard to deny them based on the names. This is sponsored by people who want better government. I mean, who's going to be against that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But 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 in but in your answer just sort of ab- about this, you know, direct democracy this initiative process. If you if you have if one has the resources, I'm, I'm speaking in a, in a more contemporary context. If one, one has the resources, then doesn't it mean that the legislature may not be the last word on lawmaking in California? And that's exactly what it means. That if you don't like what the legislature did, and the governor, you have another way around. You can go directly to the people, uh, as it were. Um, that's what that's what Uber and Lyft did. And uh, it's been true of many of these propositions, and they've come from all directions over, over, you know, from the right and from the left, from business groups, from labor groups. They've come in all directions over the years. It's sort of a unique feature of California, mm-hmm. um, which has had some serious disadvantages to it over the years as well. What uh, I mean, you 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 mentioned it in, in in our conversation, but talk about some of the specifics contained in Proposition Fourteen. What what did it call for specifically? Very simple in its language, and that was part of its elegance. <laughs> and what it said, I don't have the exact words, but what it said was neither the state nor any political city or county shall limit the discretion of any owner in the sale or rental of residential property. This language sounds like the Bill of Rights. I mean, that's how it was drafted. And in fact, pollsters called African-Americans living in Watts during the campaign, and they read them the language. They said, here's the language of this proposition that's on the ballot. Listen to this language. Uh, What do you think? You know, would you support this? 60% 
of African-American voters said, well, that sounds great. We're in favor of that until they were then told this proposition is is basically about maintaining white, all white neighborhoods. So it sounded like the Bill of Rights. In fact, Spike Wilson, the head of the California Realtors, said uh, in one speech to the Realtors, he said, we, you know, the California Real Estate Association, that's the Realtors, you know, we're not against the bill. We're not against the Bill of Rights. We And here's his direct words. We've pitched this whole thing. So we're in favor of equal rights for all. They had pitched this whole thing and the language of Proposition 14 was part of that pitching was to sound like the Bill of Rights. It sounds to me that some of this is almost cyclical because you, uh, when you were reading that, I mean, I, I hear some of the same, uh, my words, tropes used, say, for um, vote, voter suppression. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, no one is, no one wants to be a self-avowed racist, obviously, but it's pretty clear what these types of uh, laws are, are, are targeted at, even though fundamentally they say they're, they're trying to protect democracy and protect fairness, and no one's against protecting fairness. Right. I think the key notion here, what made this so powerful, and it's a direct line to Donald Trump and to what's happening now on vaccines and masks, so maybe I should draw that, is in order to make it to make it sound positive, what you take is a single very narrow right. Okay? The right of an owner to say, I'm not going to sell the home for somebody who's going to offer me my asking price. I'm going to discriminate on the basis of race or religion. You take a single narrow right and you call that American freedom itself. So you elevate that right and you make it absolute. You define that as the essence of freedom. It becomes like a litmus test. That's what's been used about the freedom of the fetus, you know, in abortion. That's what's been used on gun rights to take what was often highly regulated time, make it an absolute Second Amendment right to bear arms. So you take a single narrow right. The key idea of freedom of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, going back to Abraham Lincoln and the Declaration of Independence, was that government protects the rights of all. To secure these rights, government is created. Those are the words from the Declaration of Independence which means government's job is to balance the rights of everybody. By elevating a single narrow right, it says government has no right to touch that. It's absolute, okay? So when you make that freedom, you can take any narrow right, by calling that freedom, that becomes absolute. And that becomes the language that's been used over the last 50 years on issue after issue. And that, that's what you see on vaccines and masks. To me, the interesting political story, I argued that the Republican Party had become a party devoted to this idea of freedom, this narrow absolute right, so devoted that when it came to vaccines and masks, they have no choice but to take the position they have. I mean, it's easy for those on the left to say, oh, these people are crazy. Why are they taking these positions? Why is... This? DeSantis saying this or Abbott, you know, and so forth. But if you actually look at the facts on the ground, so here's DeSantis, whose whole candidacy and campaigns have been about the left is taking away your freedom. So here he is now. He has to violate the most basic conservative principles of local schools, right, to control, you know, what they do in their schools, and of businesses to decide on their own customers and employees. He has to violate those because he has to defend this idea of freedom. He doesn't have a choice. 
Abbott in Texas is imposing these rules against schools having mask mandates. Because a year ago, when he established his own mandates, he was challenged by the right. And he has challengers on the right who were saying, this is the guy who would favor mandates. So he has to be against mandates. Trump, in Michael Wolf's new book, when he's told by his advisors a year ago, you know, politically, it would be desirable if, if we had, you know, if we endorsed masks and supported them and so forth, because it would allow people to get to work, it would strengthen the economy, it'd help you win the election. And Trump's response was, it would be off-brand. That's the fundamental idea. For a party devoted to this as their central issue, to go against this idea of absolute freedom would be off-brand. And so they're forced into this position, no matter what the issue. In states where you know they have you know vaccine requirements on every other thing, governors have to take this position. That's what's going on in America now. What we're watching is the playing out of that being the central idea of the Republican Party. But as you stated, um, this, uh, my, again, my words, sort of oversimplifying the language is, is quite powerful. As, as you pointed out, in 64, Proposition 14 outperformed Lyndon Johnson against Goldwater, and, and Johnson got practically 60% of the vote. This initiative, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe this initiative passed every county in the state except one. Uh, yes, a, a tiny Siskiyou, I think. Yeah, every county, it got basically two-thirds of the votes. And they said uh, 75% of, of the white vote in the state. Because it said to, it, it, part of what it was, part of it was the language, but it was also, it made people feel their own freedom was at stake. The freedom meant your private property. And literally, in this case, it meant your little house with the picket fence around it. It was yours to protect. And so there was a dissident realtor who put very well what the power of Proposition 14 was about. By talking about freedom of choice, they had made that the issue. And so it said to people, here's a way of thinking about American freedom that justifies what you've been doing, that justifies all white neighborhoods, that justifies keeping things the way they are. It told people that what they had been doing in the creation of segregation and maintaining it was right. That's what it did for people. Again, I'm speaking with author Gene Slater about his latest book, Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspired to Segregate Housing and Divide America. Gene, um, we, we sort of touched on it, but talk about the importance of Proposition 14 in 1964 to the eventual political fortunes of Ronald Reagan. So Ronald Reagan at the time had been a he'd been a public speaker for General Electric. He was a, basically he was no longer acting, and General Electric terminated his contract. So he become solely a public speaker, and um, he spoke before the realtors, for example, during their campaign on Proposition 14. But he refused to endorse it because he feared, as Barry Goldberger did, that anything that created in a state constitution, an absolute right to discriminate, he'd be seen as a racist. And he didn't want, he, he thought that would be political death. So he refused to endorse it. Two years later, when the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional, he started to take the realtor's side, sort of supporting the majority. He started using their language. And it became the core of his campaign, this notion of homeowner, homeowner's rights. It concretized 
his idea of freedom, and it became his powerful tool of ascent. His attorney, his personal attorney, William French Smith, who then ran his transition team, was later his first attorney general of the U.S., was the realtor's lawyer on Proposition 14. He brought their cases to the Supreme Court. Do you want to talk at all about the history of segregation? Because the whole and how it was created, or you wanted to stay on? No, no, I, I was going to get. I, I was. I was going to okay. get to that. Right. Uh, I, I. I want to. Uh, I, I do have right. a line here. I want to stay right. with, but I, I do want to get to the to the, yeah. to the segregation piece. Yeah. In this time period that tracks the rise of Reagan, as you point out, when he started. He wasn't uh, well-versed on issues just beside the, the rhetorical gifts. And, and you talked about his ideas were literally contained um, in a shoebox. And so through your research, exactly. what was the key to Reagan's eventual success, in your opinion? I, I think, the, well, there were several things. One, he obviously had an enormous gift at public relations and, and at, feel, at seeming to people like an ordinary an ordinary guy, that he was their friend. He was sort of an uncle. So he conveyed that, that he was outside of politics. So that's, I mean, that certainly was a key. But a second was he needed a way, going away from this shoebox of sort of ideas, little things he had actually clipped out of newspapers over many years that he put used in his speeches for General Electric, uh, like uh, this anecdote about how the uh, French candle makers wanted uh, a law to uh, put out the sun because it was competing with them. So he would give these little anecdotes, these little stories, as part of a general theme about, uh, you know, uh, government was bad. But it didn't resonate in a world in which Lyndon Johnson was winning, you know, 60% of the vote in the country, and which Americans were in favor against Barry Goldard of defending Social Security and defending all the economic progress of the New Deal. So he needed a different approach. And the realtors gave him an issue about homeownership rights and a way of talking about freedom that was very concrete. I'm defending your individual rights. And that I think was was key to his rise. And, and, and was part of this sort of getting to the, to the, to the segregation piece is, is part of it uh, and you've talked to us before. I mean, no one wants to say, yes, I'm a self-avowed racist. I mean, very few people. Well, there's probably some that I'm, that I'm unaware of. But, but is, yeah. isn't a subliminal desire to maintain the status quo that gives this, these efforts appeal and segregation, however you look at it, nationwide, not just California, nationwide, was the existing status quo? Yes. And, in fact, the realtors that spend... 50 years creating segregation, first of all, and we'll get to it, I guess, was invented, sort of like the airplane. It didn't exist at the beginning of the 1900s in the United States. But it created a new, a new, it was a new marketing tool, and it created a new kind of right, the right to live in an all-white neighborhood, in a restricted neighborhood. It created a sense of entitlement, that, and FHA, you know, endorsed this, and, you know, under largely shaped by the realtors imposed these racist rules and created all white suburbs. So it created the notion that you're entitled, just as a matter of course, to live in an all white neighborhood. I mean, that's how realtors defined the American dream and it became a sense of entitlement. So whereas before communities were integrated in 1900, by 1940s, 1950s, the vast majority of whites said, yes, we have a lot right to live in an all white neighborhood. Um, so that became sort of 
common common sense. You know, it's both your own interest, and of course, it promoted the fear constantly. What segregation did it was based on the idea that one minority, a lawyer or doctor, moving on your block, is going to ruin the neighborhood. This is what realtors said about a Chinese herbal doctor in San Jose. You know, he's moved onto First Street. He's ruined the neighborhood for everybody. This was their idea they conveyed. So it forced every owner to look at any minority not as an individual, but as a threat. You know, to their own neighborhood, to their property values, to everything they had bought. They had bought. So it created that idea. And, and, and if we move beyond, obviously, past 1964, past Ronald Reagan being governor, and we go to his inaugural address, what, 1981? Um, yes. you, 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 you quote him, even though it's, it's almost two decades have passed, but here he is using language that he that draws from realtors of Proposition 14. Uh, he spoke of, uh, of equality and equal opportunities for all Americans with no barriers of bigotry discrimination while seeking to limit any federal intervention for special groups based on ethnic and racial division. So in addition to Proposition 14, he's sort of, as you touched on earlier, also sort of throwing in some of the a misrepresentation of King's famous speech at the March on Washington. Right. I mean, I think what's important is to think about uh, the Heritage Foundation in 1964. They're writing for the Justice Department. And that's a largely conservative think tank, correct? Yeah, think tank. And so they're writing for the Justice Department for Ronald Reagan's second term as president of the United States. And they say, the key to the success, the key to the battle over civil rights for the last 20 years has been how to define the terms. That Americans are against segregation, they're against inequality. So the question has been how to redefine the terms. The most critical of those terms was freedom. And it's no coincidence they wrote this in 1984 and they said for the last 20 years, because that's what the conservative movement had done. They had changed the terms about what civil rights was about to being about your absolute individual freedom. In fact, what got me interested in this book, what started me on it, partly because I'd worked in affordable housing for 40 years, was interested in the barriers, you know, I was constantly dealing with an affordable housing issue. But it was really a question in a, a human rights seminar at Stanford, where I kept saying, why is it, or how did it come to be that on every issue of civil rights, conservatives always say that extending civil rights, or protecting them or continuing them is a violation of individual freedom. Where did that come from? And as you trace that back, it came from the language of the realtors in this campaign. It, it, to me, it almost, I mean, in, in, reading, in, in reading your book, well, I guess the term that kept coming up in my mind was uh, a political sleight of hand where, where one begins with language that has uh, universal appeal, but then make um, the victim, the victimizer, uh, and the only option for relief is the federal government, which is then portrayed uh, as the abusive oppressor. I mean, how do you see that? <laughs> and that's exactly right. Uh, part, part of, uh, it's interesting, so, you know, the realtors said, well, we're in favor of equal rights for all, namely the equal right of owners to discriminate. That was what the right was, right? But we're in favor of equal rights for all. We're colorblind. And, and 
they then said, we're not against minorities. Minorities aren't our enemy. In fact, uh, here's Spike Wilson saying, am I anti-Negro? By God, I am not. I am their champion. This is his speech. So what he's doing is saying, the enemy isn't minorities. We're not against them. We're in favor of equal rights for all. We're against the abuses of liberal government. We're against government trying to seize power from ordinary people. This has a very powerful resonance because it says to the individual homeowner, you are the underdog. It's government against you as an individual. You are the absolute underdog. In fact, they used language, you know, the largest minority in the world is a minority of one, right? It's a minority of each individual homeowner. And the and government is trying to protect, if it's not freedom, which is what you are entitled to, then it's a special privilege, the right not to be discriminated against. Nobody really needs that unless they're they have they're a special interest group. So it sort of becomes the ordinary American against big government and special interest groups. So it's portrayed as a campaign of the underdog who's under threat. And that's still the way it's seen today. Uh, that you know, there's a lost sense of national of community, of tradition that's under attack. And the only way you can defend it is by supporting those who say this is the this is what freedom is about. No, we we spent a lot of time uh, talking about California, but 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 I also wanted to state that that these practices weren't exclusive to California. Absolutely, the realtors promoted a myth that you know segregation was natural and normal. Cities had always this is historic. It's always that wasn't true. If you go to 1900 in cities across the country, neighborhoods were racially mixed. You go to Baltimore, Louisville, Washington, St. Louis, there were hundreds of racially mixed blocks. In the South, people lived you know, on the same, you know, blacks and whites lived on the same block or the block behind or a block two blocks away in smaller cities. It was the creation, it was realtors, one in Kansas City and one in, um, in Berkeley in 1905, who first created racial covenants in all white neighborhoods. And this spread quickly around the country. So by the 1920s, half the homes in America and the vast majority of new homes had racial covenants. And then the realtors developed this other myth. They called it an economic truism. And they had it in every uh, appraisal manual and textbook in the country that undesirable elements depreciate property values. It was a lie. But they imposed this, they got this as a way to unify brokers and homeowners and homeowners associations all across the country. And they, it was the realtors who basically were the key lobbyists for and the designers of the Federal Housing Administration during the Depression who imposed redlining. In fact, the redlining maps were initially drafted by realtors in each city. So this was an entire national approach to selling homes and to segregating neighborhoods throughout the, in every there was a realty board in every city in the country and everyone took exactly the same position and there was a national code of ethics saying any realtor any realty board in the country who sold to a minority would be expelled they'd have to leave the business so this was an entire national program california became a focus because it had half the realtors but this was an absolutely national system Let's imagine that I'm on, I'm on Amazon. I've just read your book, which I have just read your book, but I just read your book, 
And I have an opportunity to leave a comment. And here's the comment. I want to see how you feel about it. And if I describe your book as articulating the first policy arm of what Richard Nixon would later call the great silent majority, how would you feel about that comment? Well, that's exactly right. In fact, the language of the silent majority was invented by Spike Wilson talking about, you know, the great, you know, uh, I don't have the exact words, but it was basically, he created the idea of the forgotten. He used FDR's language of the forgotten man. He talked about the forgotten majority. And these are the interests of the ordinary people of the of the forgotten majority. So, yes, that language came from the, directly from the realtors. Mm. Gene Slater, author of Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspired to Segregate Housing and Divide America. Thank you, sir, for, for first of all, Thank providing you. this important text of, uh, in these nuances of history and for being our guest on The Public Morality. We've much appreciated it. Thank you very much. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its new app. Using your mobile device, simply click on your application page, search WSNC 90.5, click open, and listen from anywhere. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) 